For me, the <clears throat> phrase that best captures our practice is serene reflection. Perhaps you've heard it called shamatha vipassana, calm and insight. Also good ways of putting it. Originally it's shamatha vipassana. Helping the mind to become serene and calm so that it can reflect on itself. Reflection here doesn't mean thinking. Not at all. It's the, the reflection of a clear mirror or a still pond. To sketch out a few of the dimensions of uh, serene reflection, which is uh, which will match the unfolding of the practice that we've started Friday night, I like to use uh, a little gatha. Gatha is a uh, a Buddhist poem or a Dharma poem. Uh, designed to <clears throat> help us be more mindful or to, to take more deeply inside certain principles of practice. Recently, I very recently, was in a situation where it was required of me to write a gatha and then to give uh, a brief commentary on it, ten minutes. Um, the gatha is very simple, as you'll hear, but ten minutes was not enough. So you're going to have to listen for maybe 10 hours. <laughs> the gatha goes like this. Doggy mind runs after bone. Lion mind unimpressed. Spider mind weaving endless web. Woof, woof, woof. <laughs> You're lucky this is not Zen because I would just walk out, that would be the end of it. In Vipassana, we explain everything. (laughs) Very clearly, and four of this, five of that, eight of this. (laughs) Let's take the uh, the first line. Doggy mind runs after bone. A few years ago, uh, I was with a few friends, and uh, one of the friends had a, uh, a plastic bone with a little lump as part of the bone, and sort of uh, the lump was paint, painted red as if it was meat. But it was the whole thing was plastic. There was no bone, there was no meat, there was no blood, it was nothing, you know. So the person would throw it, and then the dog would run feverishly after it and get it, come back, huffing and puffing, and give it 
to this person. Then someone else would get it, throw it, and the dog would run after it, get it, and come running back and give it to this other person. And everyone was laughing and kind of happy and, oh, isn't the doggy cute? And the, uh, I was just watching. Of course, I've seen that scene many, many times, as we all have. But this time, something sort of exploded inside. I wouldn't exactly call it enlightenment, but a, a light bulb, a light bulb went off, sort of like, I just watched in disbelief as this plastic bone with no, no real nourishment on it at all was being thrown and the doggy ran after it over and over and over and over and brought it back to humans who were enjoy, we were enjoying ourselves doing this. And it was both humiliating and hilarious when I realized that my mind is just like that. Is it safe to say our mind? Okay. So we'll go into doggy mind in in a bit of detail, but just to sketch out a little bit of where it leads so you have a, a context. If a lion were there and we threw a bone, I don't think the lion would run after the bone, do you? (laughs) Unless it was a Hollywood lion. But a normal lion would not run after the bone. It just sits there, very strong, majestic, in a commanding posture, totally in control, you know, king and queen of the jungle. And it looks to where the bone was thrown from. It wants to know what's this, what's going on here. It's not interested in some silly plastic bone with no nourishment on it. So that's lion mind, just to give you a hint. The practice develops. We all begin with doggy mind. And with practice, just using these images, something like a lion, lion mind develops. And even lion mind itself, highly concentrated, very stable, laser-like beam mind that can just put its attention on an object and be there as long as it wants to. Even that becomes a bone too. Because uh, in our practice, the highly concentrated mind, which brings so much joy and peace and all kinds of other benefits, becomes a dead end and like a bone like a plastic bone with no meat in terms of what our practice is about. In comes spider. Spider sits right in the center of the web. The web is just extended. The spider is also very concentrated, very stable in that web. And whatever comes into the web, let's say there's a fly at one end, just has it. It just takes care of business while in the middle of its web. Uh, Our practice more and more will move in that direction where we're not locked into just one object, but rather we'll sit, start the instructions, will change perhaps tomorrow or the day after, it's unclear. Where the sitting will be such where we have no agenda except the breathing. And so the conscious breathing is 
is the spider in a sense, in the center of the web. And the web is as vast and as large as the mind itself. Anything you could talk about, anything that humans know of, this web is big enough to take it in. Woof, woof, woof at the end, I'm not going to reveal that. (laughs) But really, that's the most important one. But we'll get to that later. Okay. Let's make sure we understand the uh, doggy mind. Sometimes images like this can be helpful because they're vivid. And if they do nothing else but help you, even for a moment, catch a glimpse at how your mind is, I would consider it useful because as we recognize ourselves, uh, this, this, the, the power of the mind to throw out bones. After all, we're throwing out the bones and we're running after it. It's a, a, one, a one person show. It's a, uh, what is it? What's that person who does one? Cornelia Otis Skinner used to do it. Anyone from, remember her? No one. No high culture here. <laughs> Soliloquy. At any rate, the bone comes out of our mind and then we get caught in it. We get trapped in it and all kinds of suffering comes from that as we grasp on to what is in a certain way very often, I'm not saying always, like plastic. There's no real nourishment. The mind's uh, endlessly repeating things. We've repeated it to ourselves thousands of times. Walking, going here, going there. He said, and then she said, and then he said, and then she said, and then I said. (laughs) And then rehearsals of what we're going to say when we meet this person and how it'll come out perfect this time. And you know that sometimes we go over, go over things, we listen to it, there's absolutely no purpose to it whatsoever. We just dig these deep ruts in our mind. Doesn't stop us from doing it over and over and over and over again. It doesn't bring peace, it doesn't bring wisdom, it doesn't bring compassion. It can bring compassion once you see the doggy in you. Compassion for yourself. When we see how, our, how uncontrolled our mind is how helpless we are as the mind runs to fetch all kinds of worthless things. So if we can begin to see that, it's the beginning of freeing ourselves from it. Beginning to understand that this process uh, loses some of its reality, some of its convincingness. We believe in it less and therefore the mind has less power over us in certain ways. The strongest example I know from my own practice uh, of doggy mind in action actually happened here. It was either the first or the second year that IMS opened up. Uh, It was a while ago. It was a winter retreat. I was doing a self-retreat. I was in the Catskills. And it was about 11.30. The time is very important, as you'll see. And the mind became just so calm, really calm, really peaceful. Very happy. Oh, it was just so good to be sitting there meditating. The body was comfortable. 
not a problem in the world. And then a thought here and there about this must be it. <laughs> Enlightenment is any second now. <laughs> this is what the books talk about. It sounds just like it. And then I'll get enlightened and then I'll go to Thailand and I'll become a monk and I'll never come back and I'll sit in a little hut in the jungle and become fully enlightened. And then it would quiet down and more peace. And then the lunch bell rang. I unfolded my legs, I got up, and I went right to the line and I stood on line to get lunch. <laughs> and I was more than halfway, through, almost on the line when I realized, my goodness, I was just on the verge of... <laughs> But where is enlightenment? This is what Corrado was talking about last night, about faith. You know, like, yeah, liberation, enlightenment, it's okay, you know, but we don't really know if such a thing exists. Well, in this case, I suddenly found myself online and I proved it with my body that uh, I preferred a vegetable, a, a tofu casserole <laughs> to enlightenment with brown rice and sprouts. Sesame seed, you know, sesame salad dressing. So it was a, humiliating, <laughs> a bit humorous, but the full humor of it didn't hit me until last year. I was, <laughs> when I realized uh, even deeper what our predicament is as human beings with our mind being the way it is. Uh, I was on the Greyhound bus reading a little book on uh, Zen in Japan and there was just an aside. It wasn't even the main part of the book and it described something. What it described was in Japan they have a classical theater. And in this classical theater uh, the actors are all monkeys. You already understand. Anyway, so the, the monkeys are dressed up in, uh, uh, well, the, the key uh, actors in this particular drama, it's a little bit like uh, very well-known Japanese dramas like Shakespeare. Only monkeys are playing the parts. They're trained to play the parts. And there's one very well-known scene, very famous scene that all the Japanese know about from their literature, where one monkey is a famous king and another monkey is a famous warrior and they're kind of faced off against each other and then the people from each side are in back and they're all dressed up in uh, royal outfits and military outfits and it's very dignified and very tense and suddenly somebody throws a banana onto the stage. <laughs> Forget it. The monkeys completely broke character or actually assumed character and ran and got the banana and just started eating. And at that moment I realized it's exactly what I was, you know, when I, you know, sort of sitting, pretending to be a big yogi, very nice, holy look on my face, good posture, maybe special meditation clothes, a monkey. Okay, so does that mean it's hopeless? Does anyone, I don't think anyone has a banana here. No. Wolf Wolf is, is relatively harmless. Anyway, um, no, of course not. 
uh, what our practice is about is, is, uh, is helping us to move from that state of helplessness where the mind is uh, mechanical, where things just happen and they're not necessarily to our benefit. And the practice of meditation and the particular version of it that we've begun with, with the breathing, uh, don't underestimate this very simple practice of just, you know, in, out, in, out, just noticing your breath. It's very unassuming, very modest, but don't underestimate its potency. Some of you, of course, know this. Uh, the simplicity of it is what enables us eventually to short-circuit the power of all of the different themes that come up in the mind that tend to captivate our attention. But it does take patience and time all kinds of other things as well. Humor, uh, endurance, stamina, faith, the support of the Sangha, of all of us practicing together, the support of wonderful meals, the support of having a nice clean place to, uh, to rest in and shower and so forth. Is just think of all the things that are going on in this retreat, the silence that we've all agreed upon, all of us just practicing together. Why do we need such a stage production? You can see why, because we're up against something. It's not easy for a human being to become sane. (laughs) So we need all the help that we can get. And in the Buddhist tradition, for thousands of years, uh, it's come about in ways similar to what we're doing here. Just an, an intelligent solution to the situation. And so what's required is uh, many, many times running after the bone, seeing it very gently coming back to the breath. What can help us with this? Of course, of course, first and foremost is just this simple movement of coming back to the breath over and over and over again. And as probably all of us know, uh, we do it at first with blame. If our mind wanders from the breath and we run after a bone, we don't only run after a bone, but in a sense we create another bone about the bone and run after that, which is we condemn ourselves. I'm no good. I don't have concentration. Everyone here is a great meditator. I'm the only one who has no calm at all. Uh, then we get, or we get ambitious. We bring attitudes which may have worked in the world of university and finance and so forth. Uh, But striving of that sort doesn't work here. How can you uh, force your way into serenity and calm? It makes no sense. You might be able to do it for a short time, hold it in place, but it will fall apart. I saw a book entitled, you know, now there are many books on stress reduction. This was by a medical doctor. And it said, you must, the title of the book was, you must relax, exclamation point. I got away from that book as fast as I could. (laughs) So one of the things is a simple thing. It's on learning that attitude of uh, a kind of grim determination uh, with a lot of judgment in it. Harshness towards ourselves, uh, which saps our energy and which defeats the purpose. And we keep going round and round and round, thinking that we're 
we're doing what's required and all the while not. And as you know, little by little you do learn how to be less hard on yourself. Some of it just comes from exhaustion. You know, you just get tired of beating yourself up for not being perfect after the first three or four breaths. But other things can help as well. If we take a look at the bones themselves, what are these things that we run after? Sometimes they're so enticing, so convincing, that we need some special help. We need to give it special attention. We need to give special understanding to what are to the character of the bones. And if we do that, we weaken them. Or in, in some cases, we prevent the bone from being there in the first place. What I'm referring to here is the precepts. If we are, uh, have accepted the precepts, guidelines to ethical behavior, to uh, help train our character, to develop our character, I'm assuming you all know uh, the, the precepts. As we do that, we simplify our life. Put it negatively. I just thought of an example. Supposing you're doing everything wrong. Okay, let me give you this actual example. Years ago, sitting next to someone uh, on a retreat, and this person fell over in the middle of the meditation hall, literally fell off his cushion. He was so tense. Later, it turned out that he was wanted for extortion, kidnapping, and, and uh, bringing dope in from Canada to the United States. And he simply wanted full and total enlightenment on Atara Samyak Sambodhi, but had on his mind, he was concerned about the police breaking the door down any minute to get him. Well, how in the world can you begin a meditative life if you're, there's so many loose ends in, your, in the world outside of the meditation hall? Probably no one here is as extreme as this person. <laughs> Can't be sure these days. <laughs> but even so, you're totally welcome. Angulimala was a killer, killed many people, and he attained enlightenment. So if there is someone like that out there, it's not hopeless. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes on the retreat, let's say we're practicing with our breath, and let's say there's a lot of hatred and aggression, perhaps towards a particular person. And we try to come back to the breath. And so many times we're pulled away that it becomes exhausting. And so, uh, you know that you can look at the bone itself. You can begin to examine the anger itself and begin to see its nature. And often that weakens its power over you. Uh, you can bring in an antidote like metta. If any of you are having a lot of anger and if that's making it difficult for you to calm down, for, difficult for you to become one with the breathing, sometimes uh, devoting some period of time in a sitting or to even devote uh, many sittings to the metta it's also a form of calming and concentrating the mind, and it neutralizes some of the anger. It doesn't uproot it, but it balances it a bit so that now the breath can be accessible to you as an object. Perhaps you have doubt. Maybe there's a doubt bone that keeps coming up. Doubt in your capacity. Doubt in the teachers. Doubt in the teaching. Well, the Buddha is a good, great teacher. I'm not denying that. But it was over 2,500 years ago. What in the world does that have to do with modern times? It's not relevant now. 
or it comes from another culture, it comes from Asia. How can it help us here? Or these two teachers, one from Italy, one from Brooklyn. (laughs) Questionable, you know. Can we really trust our dharmic life to them? And so you may have to come and talk to us. You know, you may have to, maybe there are questions about the practice that, that are not clear to you. And what is needed is the intellectual mind needs some clarification so it can settle down. Very often, the bones What is this? Very often the bones are a link to our daily life. And very often on a retreat like this, you may not be able to do anything about it. Uh, But I'll mention it because even though you can't directly do something about it, realizing that uh, can take some of the power out of these kinds of um, enticing mind states. If something is coming around and uh, interfering with your ability to stay with the breath over and over and over and over again, many times, try this. I have found this to be helpful. I don't know if it will help you, but it it may. Whatever that is, is does it point to something in your life outside of the meditation hall, off the cushion? Something that's in your life and it's time to stop. It's something that you've been doing for a while and it's time to stop, but you haven't stopped. And so something keeps banging at your mind at the door over and over. Or it's something that it's time to start to do and you haven't. You're hesitant, postponing. Uh, And because it's time to do it and you're not doing it, of course it's going to keep coming back to you over and over and over again until it gets resolved. Now, Sometimes there's a bit of a myth in meditation circles, as if we can kind of just sit through everything and just heal everything totally, just on the cushion. In all due respect, the sitting is extraordinary and wonderful. I value it. It's a jewel. But there's a full life out there, and that has to be taken care of, and it's no less value than what goes on on the cushion. It's also of no more value. It's our life off the cushion. So that if you see that, often it points to what needs to be done. Something in your life has to start that hasn't started yet, but it's time. Or it's time to end something that has been going on and should come to an end. So that is the link from seeing something in the sitting practice and realizing that uh, something must be done with people or situations or jobs or whatever it is. And so often if that's taken care of, it's amazing how the mind can get much more concentrated and calm. The more loose ends you have, of course, the more bones, the more things the mind is running after. What I've been talking about are the five hindrances, which most of you know. Uh, Let's start now. I don't think we'll, I don't know how far we'll get tonight. I don't know. um, So what is this process whereby doggy mind becomes lion mind? It includes many things, too many for us even to know. 
It includes uh, an ethical life, a, a reasonable devotion to minimize as much as possible, ideally eliminate the suffering caused by foolish actions, whether having to do with sexual energy or money or eating or life itself or speech and so forth. It has to do with developing this ability to come to one object, in this case the breathing, and to exchange all of those bones for this one, to let them go. Now, another way in which that task becomes easier is when we begin to see with our own wisdom, our own innate wisdom, that the mind that runs after the bone over and over again does not really get much fulfillment from it. That is, we dig it out of our own experience. For example, if I, I have said it tonight, I've said, much of what we run after is not really fulfilling for us. It's not really helping us. And, to put it positively, I think probably, I hope all of us, but maybe most of us, even if you're with ten straight breaths, you know that there's something happens. You feel a little bit of calm, a little bit of peace, a, a very quiet little joy. Maybe it's just the beginnings. But something valuable does come from devoting our attention to the breath. And devoting our attention to all these other things, running after them, doesn't seem to yield much fruit. Well, as we see that, our wisdom enables us more and more to turn to the breathing. We don't come to it just out of obeying the instructions, the meditation instructions, because the Buddha said so or a teacher said so. But our own intelligence shows us that this is a better way to live. Now, in our education, I don't think most of us have been taught about the, the great joy and wonder of a concentrated mind. I think our minds get concentrated here and there by doing this and that. But there is no, to my knowledge, training in our culture on concentration itself. What we think of concentration may be the ability to hold our attention to something for a short period of time. It's usually external. It's not, in, in, it's not inside ourselves. And it may be limited to one area. Let's say if you love tennis, you'll be very concentrated on the tennis court. If you love uh, film, you might be concentrated there. If you love to cook, you'll be concentrated there. If you're a surgeon, it may be in the operating room. But we, haven't, we don't have an, uh, enough, we don't know as an option that it is possible for a mind to very carefully, systematically, it's a science, it's a, it's a discipline that's been around for a long time, that it is possible for the mind with training to become extraordinarily concentrated and with that come so many wonderful benefits for ourselves and for everyone else in our life. So the beginnings of seeing that, even in a very small way, starts to turn the energy around, effort, wise effort, the Corrado mentioned a few evenings ago, uh, we turn to the breath not out of obedience or as a kind of mechanical drill in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. We go to the breath out of intelligence. And then as we begin to actually experience the value of what happens when we make that choice in that way, more and more the outer objects become less enticing. We hear them. We hear them ranting and raving. 
You know, run after me, grab me, get caught up in me. Uh-huh. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. We know it's just mind stuff. We may take note of it. Oh, okay, I'm going to deal with that later. But for right now, in, out, in, out, in, out. How else do we move towards uh, lion mind? Okay. I'd like to use the uh, Anapana Sutta, the, the teachings of the Buddha, the, the very practice that we're using, uh, to begin to help us understand how the mind gradually becomes very steady, very happy and very steady. The serene member of the serene reflection partnership. <clears throat> In this, uh, let me back off, I don't want to assume, I can't assume that uh, everyone has read The two, the main teaching on meditation, on mindfulness meditation in, the, in our, our practice really, that comes from the Buddha is the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the teachings on the four foundations of mindfulness. Without that, there's no Vipassana. It would just be cardboard, just be just a bunch of principles that could never be actualized. Anapanasati, the full awareness of breathing, is just Satipatthana only using the breath to develop all four satipatthanas. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind, and mindfulness of dharmas, or the lawfulness of it all. You can read them both. If you've seen both of these teachings, both methods, you can really read them as one sutra. They enrich each other. What we're doing is we're using the breathing to develop the four satipatthanas. In this sutra, there are 16 independent contemplations, all of which include the breathing. There are 16 slightly different ways of looking at breathing. The 16 are not random. They're quite interrelated. There's a kind of a a rough development. It's not really rough. There's a development, a kind of progressive and systematic unfolding. And so the 16 contemplations are designed to take us from calmness, from a concentrated and calm mind, to a taste of enlightenment, to a taste of the unborn, to a taste of that which was never born will never die. So it's a total practice. Uh, It's not just to calm down. The simple little breath uh, was used by the Buddha to attain his own enlightenment. He's made that statement a number of times in the teachings. The actual enlightenment was attained practicing Anapanasati. And even after his enlightenment, he continued to practice awareness of breathing. And once he was questioned, sort of, he he did a retreat. He just disappeared and went off, I'm not sure, I think for a few months. And then came back and said, well, where were you? He said, well, I did my own meditation. I was just, now he's already fully enlightened, so it's not to get more enlightened. Someone said, well, a little bit skeptical, why did you do that? I mean, you're the Buddha. Why did you have to go on a retreat? And what did you do on the retreat? Well, I did Anapanasati. Well, why did you do that? He said, well, because it's a wonderful way to live. <laughs> it's not that you have to get some higher degree or some uh, promotion. It's that 
being in the moment, breathing, just being alive, fully alive, breathing, being fully connected. Uh, that's it. Okay, the, the sutra begins and we'll just... Uh, let's see. I think it's probably best that we uh, end now and, and begin it uh, tomorrow night. Can we have a few moments of silence, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.